Actually, you may not be seated. <laughs> We're going to read from uh, Acts uh, chapter uh, 16. One of the things I really appreciate about this uh, congregation is uh, how joyful you are about submitting to the kingship of God. Uh, we just love the discussions that we have at our house, and sometimes we don't know what is it that our king de- demands of us, and so there's debate back and forth, and we're going to be uh, trying to settle one of those debates that happily has occurred in our congregation, because um, all of these things, I think, are good for helping us to dig into the Scripture in advance. And so I'm going to read uh, for you uh, Acts chapter 16 and verses 25 through 34. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and it is our desire more and more to understand what it means to submit to your will. Uh, May your will be done, Father. Have your way in our lives. And I pray that as we look into your word, that you would uh, guide us, that you would give uh, your illumination, and Father, that we would rejoice Uh, with joy exceeding uh, as we uh, see the provisions that you have given for our real-life situations. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the title of the sermon may seem uh, a little bit odd, uh, but those two words, regular and valid, are words that have been used for the last 2,000 years, as far back as the writing occurs in the church, Uh, to describe and to try to answer uh, difficult situations in real life that uh, fall within the flexibility that the the Scripture uh, gives. Uh, For example, it is the regular pattern that 1 Corinthians chapter 16 gives uh, to collect offerings when we're gathered together as a church. It's a part of worship. But there are other passages that indicate it's still valid to collect uh, some offerings outside of church on some occasions. There is the regular pattern. There are exceptions. Let me give you another example. Uh, When I was a teenager, I was uh, baptized by immersion. Uh, But uh, when I was in my 20s, there was a PCA pastor up in Canada that uh, talked with me. We were a part of a Reformed group, and he gave me dozens and dozens of scriptures that proved... Uh, beyond any shadow of a doubt that most baptisms, if not all, he thought all baptisms, but he said at least most baptisms were by sprinkling or by pouring. And then he went on to 
uh, talk about, uh, for example, the mode of baptism that the Father gives when he baptizes people with the Holy Spirit. He says, how did the Father baptize? It was always by pouring out the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit came upon them. It was shed forth upon them, rested upon them. And then he says, okay, what's the symbolism that's there? Uh, the symbolism is that uh, the movement is with the water, not with the person going down into the water, uh, it, signifying the, th- the, the fact that we are saved by grace alone and not by our actions. It's God's actions, not our own. So he convinced me of the regular mode. He showed scripture after scripture it was absolutely impossible for an immersion to take place. There were some where he said, yeah, it could be immersion, maybe not. But there were many where it could not have been. Now, I was still a Baptist. I didn't believe in infant baptism, but I was convinced of aspersion. Aspersion means the movement is with the water. It could be sprinkling, it could be uh, pouring. And providentially, at about that time, I'd been following a magazine called Baptist Reformation Review, and there was a denomination associated with that, a small Reformed Baptist denomination, that had also become convinced that the Scripture called for sprinkling or pouring. And so that whole denomination switched over to baptizing adults by pouring or by sprinkling. So my little world was kind of turned upside down, and I began having conscience problems. I was thinking, wow, I can't find any immersion in the Scripture. It's all by sprinkling or pouring. Maybe I need to get rebaptized and get it done right. And my pastor... A PCA pastor says, no, absolutely not. And he explained why. And that was the first time I'd heard this distinction between regular and valid. He said, the regular pattern that you find in the scripture is by pouring or sprinkling aspersion. But he said, the Bible allows for immersion. So there is the regular, but there is a valid and irregular pattern that you see. Uh, and I'll be the first to tell you, um, I've only immersed one person in all of my years of ministry, and the only reason I immersed that person was because I couldn't talk him out of immersion. Uh, it was a Reformed Baptist minister that was um, a member of our previous Presbyterian congregation for about four years. Wonderful family. I loved that family. They were a wonderful contribution to our congregation. But he had conscience problems over that. He, he, he wanted uh, an immersion. I couldn't talk him out of it. So in order to accommodate his conscience, we baptized by immersion. I don't think it was the best symbolism, but it was valid. Irregular, but valid. Okay, let me give you another illustration. In Reformed circles, there is debate on whether Roman Catholic baptism should be accepted as valid when people become members of a Presbyterian church. And uh, there was... um, A majority of Presbyterians after the Council of Trent said, no, it is not valid because Rome has apostatized. At the Council of Trent, they officially anathematized. They didn't just say that justification by faith alone is wrong. They anathematized the true gospel. And so the majority said, it is neither valid nor regular. We will not accept Roman Catholic baptism. Now, Charles Hodge represented a minority of Presbyterians, and he argued vigorously for the opposite view. And I respect his view, but I strongly disagree with, um, with uh, Charles Hodge, and I agree with the majority. Uh, here is what the Westminster Confession, it calls Rome a synagogue of Satan. Uh, in fact, the Antichrist, they did not accept it as being a true church. But here is how 
uh, they spoke of the essentials of baptism. This is, in a nutshell, everything that needs to be present for baptism to be valid. The confession says, the outward element to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. Those are the essentials of baptism. Now, for the majority of Presbyterians, this meant you could not accept uh, Roman Catholic baptism because we did not feel that the office of priest in the Roman Catholic Church was a lawful office that they had been called to. And so we did not uh, consider it to be valid or regular. And again, Charles Hodge disagreed. He said, it's irregular. We don't like that fact, but it still is valid. So there is that debate that goes on. Now, what about the baptism of Baptists? Well, since Presbyterian and Reformed Continental uh, churches have recognized that these are true churches and that the elders in Baptist churches are true elders of Christ, they've accepted their baptisms as being valid. They have not rebaptized Baptists when they've come into their churches. So hopefully it gives you a little bit of a, a feel of the difference between regular and valid. Now, in communion, let me give you another illustration. In communion... If God mandated that we must always and only use wine in communion, then it would be an invalid sacrament if we used anything else but wine. Uh, if we used grape juice, for example, it would not be valid. And there are some Presbyterians who have actually taken that kind of a position. That's not even a sacrament because God commanded wine. You cannot be using something other than wine. Well, I think that's going beyond the Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 4, says that the manna and the water that they used in the wilderness was a valid sacrament. And so we cannot, if that was a valid sacrament, we cannot say that using grape juice will make it an invalid uh, sacrament. Uh, it says they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink that we do. Now, there's a regular pattern. God has established it should be bread and wine, but there was an exception there, and it was a valid. Now, I should point out, some things that are valid but irregular are, have sin involved. Others, they're not sin, they're options that are involved. And in this particular case, we would say, no, God gives a, an option and uh, one of the things that we have tried to do, well, we try, we've tried to encourage people to get over the idea that wine is sinful and to reach for the wine instead of for the grape juice. Uh, but some people in conscience can't do that. And so we're trying to accommodate their conscience. And we be, believe biblically, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and the passage in Exodus gives us that kind of flexibility uh, so that we don't just say, okay, this is the way it should be. And People fall through the cracks, that's tough, okay? That's the difference between regular and valid. Now, let me, let me give you one Baptist baptism that we would not consider to be valid, and actually a lot of Baptists would not consider it valid either. Um, I know of a Baptist missionary in the Middle East. He, he lived in a very arid region where they just could not get enough water together. Uh, this was quite a few years ago. Could not get enough water together to be able to immerse somebody. But he believed immersion was absolutely essential to baptism. He did not consider what we do as being a legitimate baptism. And um, 
And so what he did is he would bury people in dirt and then unbury the person and say that that was a baptism. And we would say, no, water is essential to baptism. We cannot consider that either valid or regular, either one, okay? Now, there are other debates related to baptism, and that's what we're going to be dealing with today. But um, there was a huge controversy in the continental uh, and the English and the Scottish churches over what we should do with emergency baptisms that have been done by midwives. And um, most accepted them. Calvin would not. Westminster Confession of Faith would not. The Scottish Church would not. Uh, I will not uh, accept that. Uh, but uh, most Reformed people in the continent in the early days, they later changed, but in the early days thought, you know, it's irregular, but it is a valid uh, baptism. Now, I can respect the differences of view. I can understand what they were going through uh, back then. Uh, for example, some of the people said to Calvin, well, what about Zipporah? She's a woman. She baptized, uh, she didn't baptize, she circumcised her son uh, can that, that not be a, a valid um, uh, aspect of the, the sacrament? Now, Calvin and his institutes deals with that at great length, and he says, no, no, we cannot accept that because Moses and Zipporah were in sin. You cannot undo a direct command of God simply because somebody has an example and gets away with it. Uh, he said God commanded Moses to do it, for whatever reason, he fails to do it, and so you cannot do away with a command by an example. And other people disagreed with him uh, on that. Uh, some people said, and uh, this could be a legitimate way, though there's not a whole lot other than Zipporah. There's not a lot of evidence for this. But some people said, so long as the minister is present and the minister has authorized it, it's okay for anybody to actually pour the water, anybody to do the particular circumcision. And I think uh, you're going to be seeing why the Westminster Confession says, no, that's not valid. I'll be giving you some scriptures a little bit later on. So I think I've given enough background for you to uh, kind of understand the distinction between regular and valid. The controversy we're going to discuss today is, is it ever allowable to have a baptism that is not in front of our congregation? In fact, uh, there's been enough uh, controversy about it that this, uh, I think I said in my email that we were talking this uh, Sunday, I was going to preach on something else, and the elders uh, thought, you know, we, we probably ought to address this. This is uh, good information to get out before the congregation. Uh, I have twice baptized dying babies in a hospital after I've explained to the parents, look, I'm not going to baptize your child if you think this baptism saves them. That's not why we're baptizing your children. But it is a wonderful uh, a token that God has given us that our children are included in the covenant. And so I'm willing to do it in the hospital here. And we, I gave some of the scriptures and we, uh, we performed that. But what originally brought the issue up in our session was a, a request from Minnesota. Uh, I know a guy up in Minnesota who was interested in eventually starting a CPC church in the future, and uh, he has been converting people to a Presbyterian position, and uh, these people have kids, and they want their kids now baptized. The problem is they're members of a Baptist church, and uh, I said, well, why don't you go join a Presbyterian church? And they said, we've looked, we've tried, but there are so many deficiencies. One is liberal. Uh, the other one, uh, uh, you know, the w there's women leading the service, and it says it just, 
we can't stand being in this church. There's just too many problems. And after discussing the options, say, wow, you are in a, in a kind of a tough position. So anyway, he's asked if we would be willing to baptize uh, their children. And um, the, uh, the, the, the thought was that the elders, at least some of the elders up there, did not have a problem with uh, this person having his children baptized. They can't in good conscience do it. They don't recognize it as a baptism, but they say, sure, if you want to throw some water on a kid's head, you can do what you want. Um, And here is the interesting thing. They treat the children as being in the covenant. A lot of Baptists don't, but they do. And uh, they are willing to to disciple them. And I want to very much upfront uh, indicate but even when I was discussing it, even once I finally came to this conclusion, I will never undermine the leadership of a Baptist church. Totally inappropriate. That's their jur- jurisdiction. They have to give permission for us to baptize somebody, you know, that's a member of their congregation. Well, that would rule out 99% of all requests. But uh, we're just dealing with the theory of this right now. Uh, there's a different situation in this city that needs to be judged on its own merits, and that is that the Acts 29 movement, uh, about three churches, I think it is, in Omaha and Lincoln, uh, have several Presbyterian families in it, and I might say six or seven of those families have come from our church, you know, in years uh, past. And uh, pretty solid churches for the most part, and one church in particular Uh, does not share our view of infant baptism. They treat the children as being in the covenant, but they think they need to wait till after baptism, I mean, after profession, to baptize. Now, if the church leadership gave those families the go-ahead, and at this point, that's theoretical, purely theoretical, the question would be, is it biblical for me to baptize their children? We're not going to deal with the issues of whether they really should be in that church. It could be disagreement and viewpoints on that, uh, whether they, uh, we should baptize anybody that's not willing to be a part of a legitimate church. Uh, there could be some other odd questions that the elders would have to decide. The only question I want to address is, are our elders allowed to baptize anyone outside of the local church? And in the course of answering this question, hopefully you're going to see some applications that apply to other areas of life, and I think you'll, you'll find it to be uh, very helpful. Now, when I began discussion of this question with the elders after coming back from our short trip to Minnesota, I was initially uh, very opposed to this. I said, no, I I can't in good conscience do that uh, up there. And I had said the same to uh, one of the families here locally. No, I cannot do that. Um, In fact, I remember saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be a member of a Baptist church and expect, uh, you know, the privileges of a Presbyterian church. But at that time... I uh, had three questions that I was going to ask, and I should, let me give you a heads up, I changed my mind on that, but only because of the scripture, but here's the three questions, they're the main points in your outline there. First question, does the Bible indicate that baptism must always be done into a local church? Now, if the answer to that is yes, then we may not baptize anybody up in Minnesota, even if the elders give us permission and they say, yeah, please do. We cannot do it. It's not within our jurisdiction to be able to do that. The second question is, must the baby be baptized by an elder who is that baby's direct 
representative. And another way of saying it is, uh, you know, could you, do you have to have our elders baptize your children or could you have a visiting minister do it, you know, with the permission of the session, obviously. Uh, so that's the, the, the second question. The first question deals with jurisdiction. The second question deals with authority. Who has the authority to baptize? The third question is, should a Baptist church that denies infant baptism be recognized as a true church? Now, you might be shocked by that, but there are, are people out there who say, we cannot recognize them as a true church because at the Reformation, there were three marks of a genuine church. First mark was the uh, proper administration of church discipline. They said, another way of saying it is uh, properly handling the keys of the kingdom. Second mark was the true preaching of the gospel. Third mark was the proper administration of the sacraments. And they said, think about it. Baptism is a sacrament. They're denying children the benefit of this sacrament. They're not properly administering the sacrament. Uh, we cannot even recognize the church. Certainly we cannot give permission to, for a person to join such a church. So that's the attitude that, that some have had. It's been a very tiny minority. Uh, just to give you a heads up, this is not the way that the reformers looked at it, uh, and we're going to look at how they handled the Waldensians, who were in a similar kind of a situation. Uh, they treated them as true churches. Now, if you look at your outline, you can see there's a ton of scriptures there, a lot more than we're going to have time to look at. So if you were groaning, thinking, whoa, this is going to be a two-hour sermon, uh, it won't be. It'll, it'll be a little bit longer, a little bit heavier than your normal sermon, but <laughs> I want to focus most of my attention on the conclusions that I came to. I've listed out the scriptures I've studied in depth and uh, the elders, we've discussed all kinds of scriptures because they really want to do only what the Bible says we should do. So if you look at point B, we're just going to look at the conclusions and we're going to stick with just the passages in Acts. Now this first one, Acts 2, if you turn there, this first one gives what I think should be the regular, the normal pattern in our lives. Acts chapter 2, and let's begin reading at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. I think there's five things we can say from this passage. Uh, first, it was the apostles who did the baptizing. This was not some father baptizing on his own initiative. This is the normal pattern, ministers of the gospel. In fact, every passage, even the irregular passages, you're going to be seeing it's officers of the church. Second, they didn't wait for months of discipleship before they did the baptism. Immediately, the grammar indicates upon profession, there is a baptism. Third, baptisms were performed in connection with the preaching of the Word of God. I don't even believe it's a sacrament if there's no preaching of the Word. Calvin said that. This is all the Reformers said that. There must be the Word present for it to be a sacrament. Fourth, they were baptized into the church visible. 
Now, it's true they were being baptized into a much larger group, not the house-to-house local congregations that verse 47 talks about, uh, but they were immediately brought into the visible church with visible officers. Fifth, they were put immediately on the membership roll. In chapter 1, verse 15, there's only 120 names, at least of the men that were named there. Now 3,000 are added to that role. So again, it's not a situation where people just do what they want to do. This is under church authority. There's written, the, the names are written down, they're recorded on the rolls, and they're immediately submitting to church authority. Now we could keep reading through the passage and see a reinforcement of these principles But just look at verses 46 and 47. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And again, you can see being added to the church. Um, Though not mentioned in this particular verse, the assumption is they're saved, they're baptized, brought into the kingdom, numbered in a local church. And Alexander's commentary points out in the earlier verses, there is a connection between baptism and being numbered, baptism and being added. That's how they're added to the church. And I don't think we should ever violate any of the principles of any of these passages. They all need to be taken into account when we're dealing with this issue. Okay, turn next to Acts 8. Acts 8 and verses 12 through 13. This is another example of the regular pattern. 12 and 13. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Notice the presence of preaching. Notice baptism is done by an officer of the church, not a private member, Um, and you're going to see that in all the passages. Also notice that once Simon was baptized, he continued with Philip. He's being discipled, okay? So even though it doesn't say he's baptized into a local church, that's the implication, and uh, certainly he's immediately counted as part of a local church's ministry in Philip uh, the Evangelist. Now, in your outlines, I've got a question mark beside Acts 18 because it really could be taken either way. But I think the weight of evidence is that it follows the pattern of the thousands, of the majority uh, of the baptisms. But whether the baptism is into a local congregation or into the kingdom at large, I think we would all agree those baptized are cared for by the shepherds of the local congregation. They're numbered in the flock. And I don't think we should ever ignore that principle. We should never baptize anybody and just leave them in limbo where they're not being shepherded. Uh, That's totally inappropriate. Any theoretical baptisms that our session might engage in are going to take into account all of these principles we're looking at. Now, the question of controversy is not whether a local church should shepherd people. It should. The question is, in what jurisdiction may an officer of the church baptize people. Are there any example of officers, like Philip, who baptized outside of a local congregation? And the answer is clearly, clearly yes. And I'm going to skip over the huge number of passages in the Old Testament uh, and the Gospels that show this was the case. Definitely the case with circumcision, definitely the case with uh, Old Testament baptism. In fact, we're going to 
Skip over the Old Testament baptisms, New Testament baptisms in the Gospels, but I want you to turn with me because we don't have time to go anything beyond Acts and look at Acts 8 and verses 26 through 40. This is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and I've included a a map in your outlines. I tried to, uh, to print it in black and white, and somehow this map just didn't show up. You couldn't see anything. But uh, look at the map while I read verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Now the last phrase was added by Luke to clarify which portion of this route that goes from Jerusalem to Hebron to Gaza, which portion of it he was on. It was in the desert portion. Now in your map, the desert portion is the brown section, And then to the west is the green section, that's non-desert. And so commentaries point out that tradition is probably correct. Tradition says he was baptized at the fountain at at the spring in Hebron. And they say that seems to be the most logical place when you look at the topography of where he was baptized. Now here's a couple things that are very significant about that. First significant thing about that is there were quite a number of churches throughout this region. If he was baptized, as tradition says in Hebron, there was certainly a church in Hebron that he could have been baptized in if Philip felt that it was imperative that, he, uh, that it be done so. But he was not baptized into a local church. Let's keep reading at verse 27. So he arose, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. By the way, you will search in vain for any pools of water big enough to immerse anybody in anywhere along that uh, that route there. Um, there there were springs in Hebron that you could have waded out uh, a little ways past the murky parts to get some clean water but verse 36 continues and the eunuch said see here is water what hinders me from being baptized now what gave him the idea of being baptized they're talking about Isaiah well Isaiah talks about it Isaiah talks about eunuchs who are Gentiles, who will be included in the kingdom during the new covenant. And uh, it says that the Messiah will sprinkle many Gentiles. So he says, cool, (laughs) what hinders me from getting baptized then? Uh, Verse 37, then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now, I want you to notice only the eunuch is baptized, but both 
go down into the water, both come up, up out of the water. So it's clearly not talking about immersion here, or they'd both be baptized. Uh, it's talking about the normal Jewish custom that you had to baptize with pure flowing water. So you had to wade past the murky parts to get to that. Verse 39, and you can go to Hebron. You'll see there is no way a person could be immersed, but you have to go down into the water to get clean water. Okay, verse 39. Now, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now, the outline says that the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized outside the local church, somewhere between Jerusalem and Gaza, despite there being churches in that region. I think that's, that much is clear. The question is, why? Well, it could be Philip thought that the church is so prejudiced against Gentiles, there's no way that they're going to include this Gentile in the congregation. We're really not told uh, why uh, this exception. But there are four things that are clear from this passage. First, an officer of the church did the baptizing. Second, this baptism did not take place in the presence of other church members. Third, when the Ethiopian eunuch asks in verse 36... See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Uh, Philip did not say, well, what hinders you from being baptized is the time and the place and the circumstances. You've got to wait until Sunday and uh, get baptized at the local church here in Hebron. Okay? He did not say that. He didn't think there was anything that hinders him from uh, being baptized so long as he believes. Fourth, this officer, though not an apostle, appears to have the Spirit's authority to baptize someone outside of the local church. Now, I want to make it clear, this is not a baptism into a nebulous, invisible church like some people make it out to be. And the reason I say that is because you've got a visible officer of a visible church. He writes down the names, he records it, and he follows up on it. A tradition says that it was Matthew who followed up on this and went and planted a church in, 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 in Ethiopia. So I don't want anybody to use this to justify lay baptism or you know, just doing it outside of church jurisdiction. It's a jurisdiction issue we're talking about here. Uh, and I would argue, yes, it's unusual, but the point is the unusual is authorized as valid. Okay, turn next to Acts 9. And verses 10 through 19. This is dealing with the baptism of Saul of Tarsus. Later on, he's called Paul, but here it's Saul. And before we read the section on baptism, let me read verse 2. It says, And asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What's going on is that they... The synagogues in Damascus are sick and tired of the proliferation of Christians everywhere. So they're asking Saul to come down with authority from the priests to wipe out Christianity. Just completely uh, wipe it uh, off the face of the map. Jesus confronts Saul on the way down in verses 4 through 7. Saul is blinded. Verses 8 through 9, uh, somebody has to lead him into the city and he goes into a house. And let's pick up at verses 10 and following. Now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. 
So the Lord said to him, Arise, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentile kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with disciples at Damascus. Now there are four things I want you to notice relating to Paul's baptism. Uh, first, as to mode, I want you to notice that Paul stands up. Uh, he doesn't lie down. He, he stands up to get baptized. And he was baptized in a house, not in a lake. Second, Ananias is a prophet, does this baptism by the inspiration of God, so you can't write this off as a sinful anomaly. Third, as a prophet, Ananias was an officer of the church. And this means it's not, again, some nebulous baptism into the invisible church where who knows who's in and who's out. He is a visible representative of the visible church. He numbers Paul among the converts. He later brings him to church. So even though he's not baptized into a local congregation, he still is being baptized into the visible church. And uh, the, the reason this is important is spelled out in a book that I, I wrote on um, the biblical basis for uh, a church membership, and it talks, gives some of the scriptures that talk about giving a letter of reference. So people had to, when they travel to another church, they had to have a letter of reference to say, this man is a member, he's been baptized into the body, he, has, uh, he is in good standing. And uh, you, can read that, uh, you can read that on your own. Um, lastly, this baptism took place in a house, even though it could have been done in a local church in a worship service. It could have been because Paul goes to the local church in verse 19 uh, afterwards, the next day. And uh, uh, interestingly, in, in the story as it's related in chapter uh, 22, Ananias tells Saul, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. I think it's a good question. Why are you waiting? There's no reason to wait. He could be baptized right then and there. And just as a side note, the Acts 22 passage, uh, again, indicates that there was the preaching of the word uh, that, that happened. Reformed people, again, do not believe there's a sacrament if there is not the preaching of the word. Now, again, we're not told why this baptism was done outside of a local church. Um, you know, some people might hypothesize maybe the church is scared to death of him. Certainly, the church in Jerusalem didn't want to receive him, but I don't think that's the reason. If you look at verse 19, you see he went to church. So we're not told. All we know is that the Bible authorizes it. It is valid. Turn next to Acts 10. And this is the baptism of the whole household of Cornelius. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm just going to point out a few uh, pertinent details. 
First, there were brethren who accompanied Peter in verse 23. Now, that is not absolutely essential, as we've already seen, but it's a good idea to have witnesses to the baptism. Second, verse 22 tells us the context for the baptism. It was the house of Cornelius. Third, when verse 47 says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? The words, can anyone forbid water, implies that there might have been some people there who would have forbidden the water or might have wanted to forbid it. But Phil, um, Peter does not see the fact that it was not on a Sunday a hindrance to baptism. He does not see the fact that it was not in a local church a hindrance to baptism. He does not see the fact that Cornelius is not going to be a member of his local church a hindrance to baptism. Okay, fourth implication and that's from the, the question might be that the church has the responsibility to decide who may and who may not be baptized. They, they don't have to baptize everybody who says, hey, could you baptize our kids? No, they don't have to do that. They have the authority to forbid or to permit based upon the principles of the Scripture. Fifth, it was an officer who authorized this particular baptism. Sixth, as to mode, the literal Greek of verse 47 indicates a carrying of water to Cornelius. It's literally who can hold back the water. Okay, so the idea of forbidding is forbidding water from being brought to Cornelius. And again, the mode is the movement is with the water. It's not uh, with the person. And again, it, it symbolizes the fact that the Spirit came down upon Cornelius and his household. Anyway, here is yet another. I'm throwing in these little tidbits because I rarely get to talk about the mode of baptism. And I thought, hey, I might as well do double duty. (laughs) Throw that in there. Anyway, here is yet another case of a baptism outside the local church of which the officer baptizing was a member. So hopefully by now you're seeing that the majority Scottish position that you have to do it in a worship service, at a local service, and that the people have to face the congregation is going way, way, way beyond the Scripture. Most of the Reformed churches uh, did not uh, hold to that. The Westminster Confession of Faith did not mandate it. Scottish Directory Worship, yes, it did, but not uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay, Acts 16 deals with the baptisms of Lydia and the Philippian jailer, and we'll probably, um, that's as far as we'll go on this point. And uh, we're going to look, first of all, at uh, Lydia... That's Acts 16, beginning at verse 14. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged uh, judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now admittedly, this is an unusual circumstance because there is no church present in Philippi. She's the first convert, and one person doesn't constitute a church. So she's being baptized into the kingdom generally until a church can be established. But uh, the, the basics are here, the preaching of the word, involvement of the visible officer, baptizing with water, etc. Now, by the time we get to the baptism of the jailer, there is a church in Philippi. And you know the story. Paul and Silas are captured. They're put into prison after being beaten. They sing hymns and are worshiping God. God sends an earthquake, busts the jail open, the guard's wanting to kill himself. He stops him, preaches the gospel. The guy gets saved. And let's then pick up at verse 33 and 34. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. 
Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his house. Now he, uh, Paul gets released the next day, and I want you to take a look at verse 40. So when they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen... Did I read that right? So, so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So the house of Lydia has become a place where the church meets now. There's multiple brethren there by this time. So this passage brings up the question, why didn't Paul wait one day, one measly day, to baptize this Philippian jailer in the local church? He could have, but he chooses not to do so. We don't know why he did it, but we do know that Paul, by inspiration, knows that it is not ungodly to do so. And I'll let you study the rest of the scriptures for yourself, that is, if you're interested <laughs> in doing that. But I think I've given enough to, so you can understand why it is that the session does have flexibility to make judgment calls on occasion on these, on these uh, questions. Now, you may question whether or not we should on specific areas, uh, but... Um, uh, you know, and I've had, I've had bad attitudes on this myself in the past. Uh, I've taken sour grapes attitude, you know, you, like I said before, you can, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. But I've had to step back and I've had to ask, what would Jesus do? What would Paul do? Uh, am I being selfish or wrongly focused to never consider the irregular, even if it would be valid? Should we exclude children from the kingdom when it's in our power to welcome them. Now, there may be uh, times where the session says no, because we've judged there's a wrong motive, a wrong goal, wrong situation. It doesn't fit. And people say, well, how come you baptized them and you didn't baptize these? That's up to the session to decide all of these biblical principles and how they apply in a specific situation. Now, some people have wondered how the Reformers handled this. And I think it's always a good question, always a good practice to double-check your exegesis by the exegesis of the church over the last 2,000 years. I guarantee you, if you've come up with something new, it probably is not true, okay? It's better to double-cross-check, you know, your exegesis against what other people have done. And um, so I want to go through real quickly uh, what the Reformers thought about this, and uh, I won't bore you with a boatload of uh, quotations. There are differing viewpoints, and I'm going to start with the Scottish church, which is the most conservative. As I mentioned earlier, in their directory of worship, they insisted that all baptisms be done in a local church, in a local church worship service, facing the congregation. There were some exceptions in the Scottish church, but they were very, very controversial. Calvin was the next most strict. He did allow for some exceptions, but he generally held to the Scottish view. At least that's true in theory. Uh, yesterday, I did some reading in the Geneva Consistory Minutes. Boring. Wow. <laughs> reading through minutes. But I came across a couple of examples, maybe there's more, of uh, the session accepting a lay baptism. Uh, now, they rebuked the person and said, don't do this anymore, you know, but they accepted it. Very interesting. I would not have accepted that lay baptism. The Scottish church wouldn't. The Westminster Confession of Faith uh, would not, but they did. And so there is a situation where maybe we're a little bit tighter than, than, than Calvin and the Geneva session was. 
The English Reformed Church initially allowed for lay baptisms, but in 1549 closed that loophole and said that all baptisms had to be done by a minister and that any baptisms that occurred outside of a, 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 a local worship service should only be done if there is, quote, great cause and necessity. Now, I read through some of the debates leading up to the language, and, and there were some people say, put in there only if the baby's dying. And the others said, no, 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 we've got to give flexibility to the elders on that. And so they just left the words as is and uh, left that as a, a, session, uh, a session decision. And then it gives an order of worship to be done by the minister if a baptism was to take place at home. Now, uh, there was some other interesting debates. During the debates at Savoy, and I spelled that wrong, at Savoy, in uh, 1661, the strictest group of reform leaders gave this objection. We desire that baptism may not be administered in a private place at any time unless by a lawful minister and in the presence of a competent number. In other words, they said, we want there to be witnesses of this baptism. They go on that where it is evident that any child hath been so baptized, no part of the administration may be reiterated in public. In other words, they're saying we need to treat it as a valid baptism if it's done by a minister. They go on to say, we think it fit that children should be baptized in private rather than not at all. And as to the service, nothing done in private is reiterated in public. So even the, the strictest group there that eventually split off and they made the Savoy Declaration, they were open but cautious, just like the DCC session is. We're open, but we're saying, you know, it's an irregular thing, and it's got to be a real good reason before we're going to do it. We're open but cautious, and we would agree with them. Now, the Lutherans, they were looser than we are. We're not comfortable with their position. And as far as the Continental Reformed churches, uh, I didn't have time, ran out of time yesterday to study what their position was, but let me give you Philip Schaff. He has a massive, uh, a massive uh, history of the, the Christian church. And here is his summary. He says, It is a peculiarity of Calvin that he rejects private baptism. The other reformers hardly touched this subject. Its position was established from ancient times. But Calvin thought that baptism, like all ecclesiastical functions, was a matter of the ministerium ecclesiasticum, unquote. Now, if Schaff is correct on this, and I, I didn't have the time to study it, if he's correct, that means we are much more conservative than the bulk of the continental Reformed churches. Um, we're a little bit more flexible than Calvin, but uh, much more conservative than than the other uh, reformers, although we're pretty close to Calvin in terms of desire and intent. So hopefully it gives you a little bit of a flavor of the different nuances among the Reformational churches, and we think personally that the Westminster Confession of Faith is beautiful. I mean, it gives the biblical balance. I think it's very, very well done. Okay, second question. Must the person be always baptized by an elder from the local church? Now, there's two parts to that question. First of all, must an officer do the baptizing? And the reason I, I want to stress this is because I know some of you guys are fans of Steve Schlissel, and Steve Schlissel has written against that. He said, oh, anybody can baptize. 
And I say, absolutely not. It must be an officer of the church. It is the jurisdiction of the church, not the family, to baptize. And I will insist on that very, very strongly. And I'm insisting on that not just because the confession says so, but because the overwhelming support of the Scripture is behind it. And uh, you know, baptism replaces circumcision, so just back up to the first circumcision. Who, who circumcised the, the um, 318 male servants and their families into the Abrahamic covenant? Abraham did. He did it all by himself. Genesis 17, verse 23. I know it's gross, but he did it. <laughs> who circumcised the younger generation uh, you know, the, the people who wandered for 40 years, the younger generation, 20 and under, had not gotten circumcised. Who circumcised them? Joshua did it according to Joshua 5, verses 3 and 7. And verse 3 says there, there was this big hill of foreskins. I know it's gross, but I'm bringing this up because even with that sign, it was an officer and an officer alone who did the circumcision. Now, later on, the Levites did it, uh, but any officer of the church could do it. But even to this day, if you look at Jewish synagogues, it's the rabbi that does the circumcision of the children. And right from the beginning, that was true. Now, some people wonder, how in the world? It's talked about multiple knives, that um, flint knives that, that Joshua used, and people say, how could you do so many? Uh, I did a little re- research. <laughs> Terrible subject, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, the books say, I had no idea. The books say flint knives can be as sharp or sharper than surgical scalpels. I didn't think anything could be sharper than surgical scalpels, but that's what the books say. In fact, they said some modern surgeons have on occasion, out of necessity, used flint knives. So, learn something new. But uh, it was possible. Now, when you get to the Old Testament baptisms, you'll find they were done by the priests. By the way, the priests were not, did not have any special function in the local synagogues other than they could give the Aaronic uh, benediction. But uh, it was done by priests, which shows that this was an initiation into the kingdom at large, not necessarily to the local uh, synagogue. And uh, circumcision was done every day of the week. Because why? It had to be done on the eighth day. Uh, that the child uh, was born because that's the day that the child heals up the best, uh, if you know the science behind it. And in proselyte baptism, the whole family was baptized. Okay, when you come to John the Baptist, it's clear he was an officer of the church. He was a priest, a Levite. Uh, he, his father was a priest. There's no evidence that any father could ever baptize their children. No evidence whatsoever, unless he was an officer of the church. In fact, the Pharisees and priests are asking him, by what authority are you baptizing? Now, the implication is, everybody knows, you can only baptize if you have authority, right? It's, it's an officer issue. And so Schlissel's theology of having fathers baptize their own children is based on the slenderest of evidence, and it flies in the face of so much Scripture. So if you've even been remotely tempted to baptize your own children, don't. Please don't. <laughs> Christ's apostles, they're officers. They did the b- baptizing in the Gospels. It's, it's quite obvious, but there's an interesting debate over baptism in John three twenty-five through 26, where the disciples of John are upset that the disciples of Jesus are baptizing. They're saying, John, 
They're baptizing over there. They shouldn't be doing that. And he says, don't worry about it. He's got more authority than I do, which again establishes there is an authority that is needed. It's, uh, it's ministers of the gospel who do the baptizing. So I think Calvin and the confession is absolutely correct on this. And um, this is why uh, if uh, uh, somebody has been baptized by a female preacher in some other church, I will not accept that baptism. She is not a lawful minister of the gospel. She must, that person must be rebaptized. She has no authority to be an elder. Now, we've already shown that Acts holds the same position. I'm not going to repeat myself. Hopefully, you remember some of the things we, we talked from there. But this does bring up the second part of Roman numeral 2. Must the elder who baptizes be from the church where the person is being baptized? And the answer is absolutely no. And we could, again, review all of the information from circumcision where it's clearly the answer is no. Old Testament baptisms, the answer is no. John's baptisms, the answer is no. Uh, John clearly is not an elder from every synagogue that is coming to him. He baptizes them, send them back to their various synagogues. Same is true of the baptisms we looked at in Acts. But let me hasten to say, I may never undermine the authority of the elders of any local church, any local church. So if the elders of the Baptist Church up in Minnesota felt that this would be undermining their church, it would cause dissension or division in their church, or they just flat out forbid it, I'm not going to do it. I will not do it. I must work together with such authorities. And once baptized, I know those Baptist elders are going to treat these children as being in the covenant. They treat all their children that way, even if they're not baptized. It's inconsistent, I know, but we can praise God for inconsistencies. Now, that brings up the last objection that I've heard people make. I've heard people argue in this fashion. The marks of a true church at the time of the Reformation, I've already mentioned this, were the true exercise of church discipline, keys of the kingdom, pure preaching of the word, and proper administration of the sacraments. It says, how can you transfer a person to a Baptist church when they do not have the true administration of the sacraments? It really is. It's a good question. A lot of people say, ah, that's, that's a judgmental question. It's not a judgmental question. It's a very legitimate question. So uh, here's what I would uh, say. The problem with this line of reasoning is that you cannot take the three marks of the church that the reformers established and failed to look at how they handled those marks of a church. Now, it's true. People uh, will bring up, well, look at their treatment of the Anabaptists. I say, absolutely. They were very nervous about the Anabaptists uh, who were uh, revolutionaries, uh, especially the ones in Munster uh, who were murdering people. Uh, but uh, all of the Anabaptists tended to be uh, revolutionaries. They were not even remotely like the Reformed uh, Baptists who came out of the Puritan movement. Totally, totally different. You talk to any Anabaptist, they will say, don't lump us in with the Baptists. We're not anything like them. Okay, the radical Anabaptists were extremely dangerous with their radical socialism, communal sharing of property. Some even shared their wives. Uh, revolutionary practices. And it's unfortunate that godly non-radical Anabaptists got lumped in with the radical Anabaptists. But back in that day, you can understand how they just said, man, we're, not, we're just not going to deal with these Anabaptists. They may be true Christians, but they, they had a lot of difficulties. A far more 
fair a comparison of what is going on in some Reformed Baptist churches today would be the Waldensians. The Waldensians agreed with Calvin's doctrines with one exception. They didn't practice infant baptism, uh, even though some later did. Even Luther, who, remember, he separated from Calvin over Calvin's slight differences on the Lord's table. Calvin says there is not the literal body and flesh of Christ here. Even Luther, who separated with him over that, he later embraced the Waldensians as true brothers in Christ. And he, in his last edition of the commentary in Galatians, he regretted having distanced himself from Calvin. He said, I was wrong. He, he recognized in the heat of the moment, he said things he should not have said. And it's very easy for us to do the same thing. I think all of us have found ourselves doing that. Um, but since we're bound, oh, let, let me give you just um, a little quote here. In the introduction to Calvin's Institutes, uh, McNeil points out that some of Calvin's closest friends were Waldensians. Calvin himself said of those Waldensians, quote, I must vindicate from undeserved insult my brethren whose death was precious in the sight of the Lord, unquote. He devoted an entire chapter to liberty of conscience. Luther wrote an entire book on liberty of conscience. And I think that the way that they handled the Waldensians is very instructive for how we should relate with other churches today. While the Waldensians may have been much more restrictive in who they admitted to the sacrament, they still administered the sacrament truly and properly to those to whom they administered it. Okay, that's what the Reformers were looking at. But since we're bound by Scripture alone, let me give you some hints, and we're just going to look at one passage. There's other arguments I could give, but turn with me to John chapter 3. And this was the controversy between the disciples of John and the disciples of of uh, Jesus over baptism. Okay, John 3, and let's read verses 22 through 36. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, and Anon means place of springs, because there was much water there, and literally it's many waters there. There was not enough water to immerse anybody, but there were springs bubbling up out of the ground all over the place. So plenty of drinking water, plenty of water to baptize with. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now, I think the, the words of the Reformed writer William Hendrickson are very much to the point here. He said, note the following. First, in the spirit of jealousy and anger, they purposely avoid even mentioning the name of Jesus. As they see it, Jesus and John are rivals, competitors. Second, they seem not to have been pleased with the fact that John had borne testimony to Jesus. Their words probably constitute a veiled rebuke. Basically, you shouldn't be saying nice things about that church. People are going to start going over there. That's <laughs> basically what's going on. Third, he says, they make full use of the figure of speech called hyperbole. All are going to him. That is, soon you'll be without any follower. And you know what? It would be very easy for me and for you to become displeased with competitors, quote unquote, if we didn't have a broader kingdom perspective. It'd be very easy for me to take a sour grapes attitude toward the six or seven families that left our congregation over the last five years 
and are part of Acts 29 uh, churches if we didn't have a, a, a broader kingdom perspective. It'd be easy for us to say, you know, we need to establish rules, and then people fall through the cracks, and we say, tough. You know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. But real life is much more messy and complicated, and the Bible sets things up to be able to deal with real life messy situations. Look at verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. This verse shows that John did not think of the church as his church. This is Christ's church. And what I need to do is to be faithful with with what God calls me to do and rejoice not only that God's grace is triumphing within my ministry, but rejoice that God's grace is triumphing in the ministries of other people as well. And I can honestly say that I rejoice at the ministries that are going on in the Acts 29 churches here in Omaha and in Lincoln. And I would encourage our congregation to rejoice at what God is doing in the broader kingdom. Don't be upset that six or seven families have gone to Acts 29 churches. Instead, rejoice that their gifts are being used. And I tell you, they're being used in some ways they couldn't have been used here. And rejoice that they're blessing those churches. Those churches are a blessing uh, to them. Certainly, their churches lack some wonderful things that are in our church that we value a lot. Uh, in fact, we value them so much that we think, how could anybody even go to a church you know, that doesn't have these things? But let me assure you of something. We lack some wonderful things that the Spirit of God is doing in those other churches as well. God's kingdom is broader than our church, and we've got to realize that. We've got to understand it. And... Um, Let's take a look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. What? He's losing people and he's rejoicing? Yes. He's rejoicing because Christ, he knows Christ needs those people elsewhere, and what pleases Christ pleases him. Now, I have to admit, I've had times where I've felt real bad that people are leaving and thinking, what is with that, you know? And I've had the bad attitudes of John's disciples instead of the good attitudes, the rejoicing attitudes of John. But I can honestly say right from the beginning when those things were happened, within seconds, At the most, within minutes, I would rebuke myself and say, no, God's kingdom is broader than our church, and I would look at it from God's perspective of what God was doing, and I could rejoice. I could rejoice that God's purposes are being done and uh, that his kingdom is much broader than our, our kingdom. And I think we all need to rejoice. I can honestly say God's doing some wonderful things in those families in in other churches we've been able to minister to them and god says okay you've ministered all that i think uh, i want you to minister i'm going to have some other church minister in their lives now verse 30 he must increase but i must decrease he who comes from above is above all he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth he who comes from heaven is above all and what he has seen and heard that he testifies and no one receives his testimony He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. 
He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. For John, it was all about Jesus. It was all about Jesus. Now, there is another John, uh, not John Calvin, but John Frame, who's written an interesting article called Machen's Warrior Children. And this article, I don't agree with everything Frame says, but this article has some good points about how we reform people. We want to defend the truth, and that's a good thing. But we can become so focused on issues that we fail to minister to people. We can become so focused on issues that we separate over the slightest differences. And I'm not talking about saying, oh, we ought to just ignore truth issues. Not at all. Right from the beginning of this church, I have said that we need to embrace all whom Christ embraces and speak the whole counsel of God to them. It doesn't have to be either or. It can be both. If we're gentle, if we're gracious, if we're patient, there's no reason why we can't talk with each other about all of these different uh, kinds of controversial uh, issues. They do not have to be uh, opposite. Some churches make a big, long list of things you can't talk about. You can't talk about homeschooling, can't talk about this, can't talk about... I don't think that makes a healthy environment. Now, I'm not going to go to another church and try to teach people and undermine their doctrines. That's a different issue. But we ought to be able to talk. And I talk with Baptist pastors and others all the time about our differences and joke with them. And, and they'll try to convince me of immersion. And I say, oh, no, I'm going to stick with the way God the Father baptizes. You know, he always baptizes by pouring. Uh, and we, we talk back and forth on these. I think it's a healthy thing. And it's not healthy to clam up and feel uncomfortable. Now, while the Reformers would not have allowed the Waldensians to be officers in their churches without baptizing their children, they would have welcomed them as members. Likewise, in regions where there were no Reformed churches, people fellowshiped and worshipped in the Waldensian churches. The Reformers were not perfectionistic. They saw that God made the Bible flexible enough to deal with life's sticky, messy issues that are out there. Let me quickly end by making three additional applications. And these are from the scriptures that we've just been through. All of these scriptures reinforce powerfully to me that God wants us not only to value our local congregation, our local synagogue, so to speak, and he does, but he also wants us to value the relationship of our synagogue to Israel as a whole, so to speak. Uh, we've got a, a, a man going to be speaking with us, uh, Dave Krogman, after the service, and what he's doing is, is exactly that. He's networking churches to try to protect and and help families from the encroachments of government and from some of the problems that um, child protection agencies and others are you know are seeking to do he wants to set up some christian foster care to 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 try to help with that and i think it's a great example of valuing the broader body so please stick around and listen even though i've gotten long-winded gone a little bit over Uh, stick around for that A second application is that I constantly need to be reminded, and I think every one of us needs to be reminded, that we must give liberty of conscience to each other. We must give liberty of conscience. Calvin wrote, as I mentioned, an entire chapter on liberty of conscience. Luther wrote an entire book on that subject. It's an important subject. And I think the Reformed community recognized the need both for a unified theology, that's what the Westminster Confession is about, as well as having patience and grace with those who aren't there yet. The last application is the title of this sermon. The fact that Scripture allows for irregularities should not make us shun the regular. For example, 
The fact that the Scripture allows you to dig your ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath should not make you say, yay, let's push our oxen in the ditch on the Sabbath. Let's work on the Sabbath. Uh, let's just do the irregular all the time. No, irregular should be irregular. If you're doing it every day, it's no longer irregular. Well, the same is true of baptism. There is a movement in Reformed circles to open the door on baptism and the Lord's table, allowing fathers to baptize their children, to serve communion within their, their families, and it's just not right. Church officers alone have that jurisdiction. It has never been given to the family. The home church movement completely violates the letter and the spirit of the verses we've gone over. Now, of course, if you want to see more on this, there's two books, booklets that the church has published. Uh, first one is on the biblical basis for church membership. The other one is on the biblical mandate for regular assembling of the saints together. Now, I know this has been a heavier sermon, but I really think it's important we get this information out on the table because people have discomfort. They feel this is wrong. We've got to discuss it, but you, you discuss things freely, okay? Do not feel uncomfortable about that. And as I said in my email this past week, we're, we're glad. There's gracious disagreements and there's gracious discussion of these kinds of things. To me, it shows we got a thinking congregation. I appreciate that. And anytime there's thinking, two people are going to disagree at times, Right. So that's an okay thing. And even if you are not convinced by this sermon and you still hold to the stricter Scottish view, I will respect you on that, but I ask you to respect the elders as well because we are seeking to be scriptural. We may not always succeed, but we, that's our heart's desire is to be scriptural. So thank you for encouraging me to preach on this and the Lord's blessings be upon you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this congregation and I thank you for the grace that has been manifested over the years, but we desire to become more gracious, to be more scriptural in the way in which we handle uh, controversies with each other. Uh, may we be bold to speak the word into each other's lives, but also bold to love each other and to embrace each other at the same time. I pray that we would grow in your grace and I thank you for this opportunity. This is a wonderful opportunity uh, to practice uh, our disagreements and how we should uh, discuss these disagreements together. It's, a, it's a, a gracious and wonderful providential opportunity that you've given to us to grow. And so I pray that you would bless this, your people. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.